0: We welcome all of you worldwide. Good morning to Bloomberg Surveillance. Right now, we've got futures at negative 311 over on the Bloomberg terminal. We're down over 1,000 Dow points over the last 18 hours or so. We are thrilled to bring you this morning Jeffrey Yu of UBS Wealth Management, of course, with his wonderful ability on correlations of market, particularly back to foreign exchange. Jeff, let's start there. What are the correlations in the market now that allow you to be long
1: equities? Well, right now, um, the the lack of correlations, you know, between what's going on in foreign exchange markets, you know, for example, uh, versus what's happening in um, equities and uh, fixed income. The fact that um, FX is ignoring this, which tells you, especially if you look at EMFX and the dollar, it's been discounting, let's just say, the divergence between U.S. and the rest of the world already. So I think FX traders are not too fussed about this. Dollar yen, down two big figures, you know, from the highs. Again, not too fussed about it. So again, reason to be not pessimistic.
0: Jeff, I want to go a little mathy here right now. Within the global leverage, within the mysteries of the financial system, everybody, including Mr. Taleb, worries about tail risk. What are the distributions of the financial system now, and how exposed are those tail risks, those so-called fat tails, out that lead to jump conditions, that lead to abrupt moves? I believe you're pretty sanguine on that.
1: Well, again, they need to be more specific about tail risk coming from where. Is it event risk that's in the price already, or is this just code for um, the likes of risk parity or risk control other products out there where you have enforced deleveraging, you know, so leverage type structures, which is actually uh, um, causing uh, vicious cycles you know, at this point. I think we need to be clear about, you know, what Peter talked about earlier. Is it a market structure issue or an event risk issue? I think we're looking for technical issues in market structure right now a bit too much and ignoring some of the positive and negative issues in the markets right now. So again, focus on fundamentals. I don't worry too much about the tail risks coming from market structures. We continue to worry about the tail risks from events. But,
2: but Jeffrey, I guess mm-hmm. the concern is that we have a, a numerous, you know, events or risks. Mm-hmm. It's emerging markets, it's the mm-hmm. dollar higher, it's a concern about end cycle mm-hmm. in the US, Italy. And if they all come at the same time, mm-hmm. China, yep. if they all come yep. at the same time, could yep. it be the perfect storm? So there's not one catalyst, mm-hmm. but all these little bits right. coming together.
1: Absolutely. And then the perfect storm, then people ask, what is the safe haven, right? So is the safe right. haven the dollar? And people are asking, so I've had questions from clients already. Oh, Do you think China is actually exacerbating the Treasury sell-off, you know, as a counterpunch you know, to the trade wars and whatnot? Well, in an environment where emerging markets are losing reserves already, and you're seeing it in the data, of course, they're not going to have less flow to buy Treasury. So, again, that should be in the price it's in the price of dollar performance against emerging markets already. So again, I wouldn't overplay that angle. When the time comes, diversification should start to do its job, and the Fed will react as well.
2: Okay, so what do you think the mm-hmm. Fed will do? I know UBS mm-hmm. have an outlier call, yeah. right, mm-hmm. on, on the Fed right. probably having from mm-hmm. here, have it having yeah. to stop hiking. Does the Trump accusing them of being local change mm-hmm.
1: that? So uh, that's where we have to be very careful in terms of if, is is the Fed, um, so for the sake of argument, you know, if they, let's say, pause up ahead, are they responding to political pressure domestically, or are they responding to data. Let's focus on the data as much as possible. If the market starts to second-guess that, then we may have more issues about credibility.
0: Yeah. Jeff, I want to walk through risk parity right now. I want you to explain to our global audience what this phrase risk parity is and why it may blow up with the correlations where they are now between equities and fixed income.
1: So fundamentally, you are targeting, so rather than target a return framework, you're, you're targeting a volatility framework and deploying leverage at the same time. So uh, the, it, it starts to break down, and that's the worry right now, when conventional diversification starts to do, uh, stops doing its job. So you don't get the positive diversification benefit from um, owning bonds in a leverage manner for that matter. And the risk is, the fear in markets, I right know what's been talked about, the structure is, you get a correlated sell-off where right. if equities <clears throat> fall and bonds for, it, it starts to accelerate. But I think that's overplayed. In January, it was shown ultimately risk parity didn't contribute aggressively to that.
0: But So you're, this is critical. You're not concerned about an overlay of risk parity damage that leads to a greater volatility right now. Mm.
1: So risk parity intrinsically is not short vol. It is leveraged, but we need to distinguish leverage short vol okay. versus leveraged in a volatility framework. These are completely separate. Right.
0: Very good. Sounds like the green book of the International Monetary Fund. Jeffrey, you there with a the clinic <laughs> I'll take that on as risk compliment. parity right now with UBS. Enjoy. Is it once a year or twice a year that we go to the land of avocado toast?
3: I believe it's once a year.
0: Okay, well, here at Oppenheimer Funds, we thank them for their commitment to Bloomberg on the economy, Bloomberg surveillance, and all of John Farrow's various media properties, which is a good way to bring in Krishna Mamani Can I you- just
3: say that we have a live audience at Oppenheimer Funds, and it didn't fill out until Krishna walked into the room.
0: I, they're well, not, they're well, not here for us, uh, are they? They're, they're <laughs> mostly his, his entourage, which, you is know. Is this a paid is, audience
3: it's for like, you, this it. Krishnamo CIO and Head of Fixed Income here yeah. at Oppenheimer Funds. What's your observation, the key observation exactly. from the last couple of weeks and the price action we've seen?
4: Well, so the, the correction was uh, long in the making. Uh, when you have the Fed talking about uh, there are no neutral rates or we are not close to neutral rates and we can keep going, and when Trump is declaring victory that NAFTA was an easy win and we're going to show it to the Chinese, that's a bad combination for the market. I think at the end of the day, though, the economy is doing reasonably well. Earnings should be reasonably good. We, have, uh, we still have uh, an uptrend still in place despite the correction. We have seen these types of corrections before, so this too shall pass. So there's a couple of things I want to get into with you, whether you think
3: rates have repriced enough, in treasuries and whether there are any worrying signals coming from credit, so let's do both of those now.
4: Sure, so rates have definitely repriced. I think the, the question for us is are rates going to three and a half percent anytime soon and my mm-hmm. answer is the likelihood is yes, probability is probably uh, uh, relatively low at this point. Uh, so uh, the, the As far as credit is concerned, I think that is probably the strongest place in the market right now. And I take a great deal of comfort watching the credit markets. Even today, after a massive correction, and all year for that matter, uh, credit spreads have been relatively resilient, especially in the high yield market. And if if there's going to be a significant correction in equities, credit not showing any cracks i think that would be very unusual
0: the mathiness of this is the search for fat tails and the idea of a jump condition some would say we saw a jump condition in february those that loaded the boat on what was it february 8th look pretty smart now that was just a correction krishna most of the people and i would suggest most of the shareholders of oppenheimer funds it's a distant memory what a real bear market is, isn't it? We don't remember what 18% is, do
4: we? Uh, we, we don't, but for good reason. Uh, that is, uh, the underlying trend really has been very, very modest. So when you have 2% growth rate, uh, inflation not manifesting itself in any significant way. A central bank that is accommodative, that's a good, com- that's a good combination. Expecting 20-30% type corrections in that environment, I think, yeah. is relatively I mean, uh, this rare. Is, this, is
0: a, this is a coiled spring analogy. I mean, we're not g- being given the opportunity for the coiled spring, unless, John, we sustain 4% GDP.
3: Without an inflationary element, do you see Treasury yields at 318 right now in a 10-year going much higher? than they are at the moment, Krishna.
4: No, I don't. I think uh, if you kind of take a one-year view, our view would be that rates are lower in one year's time rather than meaningfully higher from where they are. So you think 10s and 30s are a buy right now? I, I think 10s and 30s for long-term investors are extraordinarily good buy at the moment.
0: What Within that mix of a higher price, pick the tenure year and a lower yield, what part of that will be in the real space and one part will be in that squishy inflation space above it.
4: Well, so I, I think that's really the uh, the, the kind of... Uh not the beauty, but I think that's really the thing to watch today. That is, the rise in yield has been entirely driven by real rates.
0: Real rates, a belief in the economy and all
4: that. Exactly. The, the, the <clears throat> fact that real rates have risen sort of slows the economy down meaningfully in six to nine months, and I think that will lead to a rally in so treasuries at some this point. This is a
0: really important point and goes to Krishna's work, but also, Jeff, for you we mentioned earlier from UBS, and that because, John, we've had a rise in the real rate, it's a compensation factor that can give you confidence out if you believe that story.
3: But you think this can be self-limiting. Essentially, that's what you're saying, Krishna.
4: Oh, yes, it is. And and throughout the cycle, this has been self-limiting. That is, coming into 2018, we had a trillion dollars worth of stimulus dropped in the economy. Economy accelerated in a very, very, very rapid way. And, uh, and, and then we are talking about Fed tightening and things like that. That's all self-regulating uh, regula- mechanism. Yeah. Uh, it, in today's world, when the trend growth rate is still 2%, and inflation is absent, You know we will have lots of ups and downs, but at the end of the day, things are not going to change material. You
3: made the observation of what is happening in credit and what has been happening in credit through 2018. And there are two observations you can make and there are two binary opinions you can have. One is that you look at high yield and you say everything's okay. The other is that you look at investment grade and you say it's not. What's happening at in investment grade and why is that so different?
4: Well, so investment grade, the issuance was meaningfully higher in investment grade than it was in high yield. So I think that technical consideration certainly uh, drove widening in investment grade spreads. But even investment grade spreads in the later half of 2018, mm-hmm. into, in the third quarter, for example, have done materially better. Right. And when, even when they widened, they only widened marginally. So if you, you know, with the tightest the, coming into the year was 80 basis point spreads. It went to a little over 110. Now we are back close to 100. So it's been back and forth, we panic in the market because it's a big move relative to that's what it a, that's has That's a been.
0: surveillance breaks loose with Mamani panics.
4: <laughs> but at Just the end of the day, the move, isn't that, uh, yeah. the move isn't that substantial. If this is
0: important because the conversation for the last 32 seconds has been entirely the real yield conversation. Yeah. Your property tomorrow, what time is that tomorrow? It is at 1 p.m. 1 on, p.m. on, on Bloomberg, Bloomberg television. television. Chris Mamani is my, a guest quite often. Oh, probably tomorrow yeah. as well. Christian, very importantly here, the Oppenheimer Funds Heritage is the international market is this pullback, again, with Dow futures improving negative 145 versus negative 390 minutes two hours ago, is it an opportunity in international stocks where they hammered yesterday or is it just a domestic story?
4: Well, so uh, clearly uh, uh, equities have gone down globally. But remember, equities, international equities went down meaningfully lower uh, long before the US market crack. So if you look at valuations on a global basis, international valuations are extraordinarily cheap. You look at emerging market valuation relative uh, to the US valuations, even with the sell-off, I think international valuations remain far more attractive than US. doesn't mean US equities won't come down, but I think for long-term investors, the better opportunity is internationally.
3: I've heard a lot of people make the big convergence call for equities. Can you make the same call for the bond market? I'm looking at a Bund treasury spread right now on a 10-year maturity of about 265 basis points. Could you make the same call for convergence in fixed income?
4: Well, there's not going to be an equity convergence unless there is a bond convergence. And I think there'll be a bond convergence coming in 2019, and it'll be driven not typically as international uh, economies doing much better. It'll come from the U.S. economy starting to slow down. The convergence will be driven by U.S. slowness as opposed to acceleration in, in international economies. I want
0: to touch on our next conversation. Is the IMF right about global slowdown?
4: Well IMF is right in in that uh, things are slowing down and we have probably seen the peak of the recent spurt in economic growth. So I, I think 2019 okay. is going to be a lot slower than 2018.
0: Oh, We'll canvass the world with Krishna Mamani here at Oppenheimer Funds. John Farrow and I visiting uh, today in their studios downtown, their beautiful studios. It's pretty fancy. You know, I,
3: you know what, I could get it's comfortable a, here. Like, like t- I'm thinking could, tomorrow. Can we, can
0: we come more often, Krishna? Would
4: you you're, let us? You're always welcome. You you're your a other, nice guy, Farrow. You could do your other properties <laughs> I, I might, you here tomorrow. That I'm a
0: nice guy. Oh really, never said that to me. He didn't say me. that about you, did he? He does not say that about me. She is from the University of Middletown, Connecticut. Dana Peterson uh, with Citigroup out of uh, the Wesleyan University Economic Shop as well. And critically, Dana Peterson with expertise at the Fed on the fiscal watch as well. Dana, wonderful to speak to you. Where are we in the dynamic of all the debt we're going to have to create to pay for our deficit and what it means for the American economy. When you see all the gloom, the reports, chronic trillion dollar deficits, how do you respond?
5: Sure, absolutely. It seems like no one's paying attention in Washington indeed, uh, as we did have the tax reform uh, passed uh, in December of last year, and then also the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018 earlier this year. And certainly House Republicans have already advanced um, legislation for tax reform 2.0, which would cost another $660 billion. Um, And when we look at this, certainly the fiscal stimulus from the federal government is definitely bolstering the U.S. economy. We're looking at probably three growth for this year, with at least seven-tenths of that contributed by fiscal stimulus. And the next year, probably around 2.8%, but again, around one percentage point from fiscal stimulus. But over time, this is going to to really affect the economy in terms of outsized debt, as you mentioned, um, certainly crowding out of business investment. And even currently now, we're seeing the Treasury, uh, the U.S. Treasury responding to this with increased issuance. In fact, uh, the Treasury has increased its uh, nominal uh, note issuance and bond issuance uh, as of February of this year. And in the second half of this year, we're probably looking at the right. most debt issued ever.
6: Dana Peterson, if growth is coming from added fiscal stimulus, then what should be the real interest rate level currently if interest rates are moving because people anticipate greater economic growth?
5: Well... I would like to say that underlying growth is still quite strong. We're looking at around two and a quarter percent, and that's notably above potential, which is probably you know one and three quarters percentage point. So the underlying economy is doing very well despite the stimulus. Um, but the Fed is is normalizing rates. Uh, they're not responding to an overheating in the economy, and the neutral rate is uh, you know I'm looking I'm looking at uh, different research. Uh, it, particularly the Lobach-Williams model, is suggesting that the neutral rate is in the range of 275 to 3% she did that? in nominal she, terms.
0: She, she, she did that without avoiding the R-star. I
6: don't even R-star know. Thing. She's yeah, dazzling That is that. That. amazing. She
0: just, you know. But see, but here's my point.
6: Story. Let me just go back to this for a second. The idea being that if everyone looks at the fiscal stimulus because and then they say, oh, well, you know, the federal government budget deficit and all this, is, and that's what's fueling the economy or getting us, you know, an extra half a percent or an extra percent of GDP growth. And then you get people that say, all right, so why do interest rates move? They move either because there's a lot of, there's inflation or because there is uh, real economic growth. So if you have this one-time fiscal stimulus, that goes away, shouldn't rates then anticipate a lower growth trajectory? So as a result, rates should actually be going down.
5: Well, uh, rates should actually be rising if you're anticipating <laughs> lots of debt coming down the line. Indeed, uh, for 2018, the federal budget deficit was close to $800 billion. And the next year, we're going to be looking at a trillion dollars. And it's only going to get worse going forward. So naturally, rates should reflect that. And indeed, uh, you know, when you look at the 10-year yield, it's been... Uh, lower than what fundamentals would suggest. And, uh, you know, certainly now that we're at three and a quarter, that's probably more in line with uh, the expectations for for growth, at least uh, Mm -hmm. over the next uh, few years, and the 10-year outlook for for, uh, federal budget deficits.
0: Dana, I want to get in trouble with Catherine Mann. That's what our job is here uh, this morning, your wonderful chief economist. Is President Trump right about Fed independence? Do we need a Fed that's a little more politically sensitive?
5: Well, I think uh, <laughs> that's great. I actually wrote a, a couple of papers about this, and history sh- tells us that an independent Fed is probably the best Fed, um, because when you had instances of government, either Congress or presidents, or even sometimes the populace, interfering with the Fed's work, you get pretty bad outcomes. And I think uh, the important thing is that the Fed is not restricting policy to slow down and overheating mm-hmm. the economy. The Fed is just normalizing, trying to create some monetary policy space, and it's if you don't have commentary from those uh, you know, who are not uh, within the, the Fed. And so uh, Fed independence is very important. I think if we look around the world, we see uh, a number of cases where uh, the central bank is not independent right. and you see rampant inflation and slower growth.
0: Dana, thank you so much. Dana Peterson with Citigroup. An update here uh, more towards fiscal and a fixed income space, as you would do with a market move, than economics. Tim, I want you to bring in our esteemed guest, but there's two ideas here that are really important. First, anybody out of the combine at California, at San Diego, is way mathy, way statistics like James Hamilton and time series analysis and all that stuff, which is really cool. A bunch of they like grow Nobel laureates out there in in how things move. And then you combine that with I think the gross misreporting of the Chinese technology companies, including Tencent. I make jokes about it. So we finally have in front of us a real authority on that consumer juggernaut in Asia, in China, and on Tencent as well. Why don't you well, bring in Justin, our guest? Yes,
6: Justin Leverenz is the Director of Emerging Market Equities, Portfolio Manager of Oppenheimer's Developing Markets Fund and the Emerging Markets Innovators Fund. And he joins us here at the beautiful Oppenheimer Funds studios. Thanks very much for being with us, Justin. All right, as Thank Tom is me. describing, we're going to use this as a point for you to talk a little bit about Chinese equities, and in particular, Tencent. I think just before we went on, you said you've been buying Tencent for how long?
2: Ming dynasty. Uh, I've been in, in the Ming dynasty. Okay, I've been involved <laughs> for 12 or 13 years. Okay.
6: What is going on? with that kind of commerce in China, and I know in the fund you've also got Alibaba and a variety of other stocks, but what, what's the thesis for Tencent, for owning it now? Sure, well the thesis for Tencent is slightly different than
2: commerce. Commerce would be Alibaba or Pinduoduo or, or those companies, some of which are related to WeChat, the super app that Tencent owns, as a property to distribute Does them. everybody
6: use WeChat in so China?
2: WeChat has a billion subscribers you know, so slightly smaller than Facebook, of course, but we're talking about one particular geography. So, you know, effectively, all of organized China has WeChat. Is that something that they have already monetized completely? Absolutely not. So if you, th- you think about what Tencent was when I invested 12 or 13 years ago, it was kind of a speculative bet that, a large user base would eventually be monetized. That got monetized in a way that I had not anticipated, which we'll come to in, in the moment. I had anticipated it was going to become a massive platform for advertising. What it became was a massive platform from content. So, you know, this is the company with the largest music base. Of course the company's going public at the moment, the largest literature base and really the core of the company from a profitability perspective is games. You know, the largest game market in right. the world and Tencent Complete and dominates games. Then four or five years ago, they came out with WeChat, which all of a sudden became a billion uh, users, and is this super app platform that we've never seen in the rest of the world. That lots of the ecosystem, and Tencent invested in all of those companies, whether it's JD or Pinduoduo or Meituan Dianping, have invested in all those companies, which create distribution capabilities for all of these things, and that your your direct question is absolutely not monetized properly yet because unlike Facebook in my particular view this company has been very deliberate about user engagement and making sure that they don't put ad loads that start to disrupt the, the entire ecosystem. So very cautious.
0: Okay, to, to cut to the chase, you own this thing at $2.67. Yeah, something like that. It's not like trading that. at 2 He said that with a straight face. Okay, well that's why he takes 12 weeks off in a, in a row and I don't. Okay, it's gone from $2 to $267. I'm looking at a log moving average and I've had one two maybe three and now four times to buy the long-term moving average is this the mother of all buying opportunities to enter 10 cent if i know the boat left the dock 15 years ago
2: well our horizon is the long term i think you know the reason we're the largest actively managed emerging market investor in the world is because we're all about the long term so things like the last couple of days don't really disrupt. when you get
0: a when you get a pullback to you say let's go
2: well, I'm not a technical investor, so I'm not sure about moving averages. Oh, but I would agree him. But I would agree with you, You know, $330 billion. This is a company that's going to be a trillion dollars in the next five or ten years. Do you know,
0: Pim, there are no charts in the building of a of Manami? Really? There's no charts here. No, no charts? They do no technical analysis here. I, I, I just don't got buy a well, charter come to, come well, on. Well,
6: Mamani might do technical analysis. Might. I do not, yes.
0: Okay, we'll go with that.
6: All right, I want to ask you about innovation, because as I described the title of one of the funds... Do you believe innovation is going to reap profits for investors in China? Absolutely. So if you think
2: about the developed world in the last 10 or 20 years, significant disproportionate returns have come out of disruption. If you think about emerging markets in the 25 years I've been involved, it's largely been about mean reversion sort of investment opportunities. I think the emerging markets have completely shifted in the last decade in the sense that actually disruptions becoming a, a very common theme in the, developing, uh, in the emerging markets as well. So if you look kind of across the globe, there are really two pools of significant talent, two pools of continental size sort of tech opportunities. One, of course, we know is in the United States. And the second, which most didn't believe me five years ago, is actually China. You know, if you look at unicorns around the world, almost 40% mm-hmm. of unicorns are in China, the top seven of right. un- the, the largest uh, market capitalization company, seven of the 10 are in China.
0: To your comments on Facebook, what can Mr. Zuckerberg learn from Tencent? What is the Tencent best practice that he needs to learn at Facebook?
2: I think the issue is about sustainability. You know, Tencent is a company that's enormously cautious about sustainability and not over monetizing in the short
6: term. Is that because there's a cultural bias in China to look at time as something that is very powerful and you can look 10, 15, 20, 30, 100 years into the future. I think it's about governance.
2: You know, it's not distinctively related to Tencent and Facebook, but one of the things that we constantly think about is governance. You know, most companies are run by people who are not either intelligent or they follow. Tencent's a very clever company that's got a widely well, distributed set of management that that thinks for the long term within
0: every book in China. There's a red phone linked into the Communist Party on every you know SOE's desk, every industry's desk. Is is Tencent linked into the government? Can you be so bold as to say that?
2: Well, what I can say is all companies have to operate in a particular context, whether it's Russia, which we invest in, or China, or the United States, and absolutely, Tencent is the largest content company in China. Yeah. It has to be very careful about. Things like content rules. Pim,
0: this has been the most intelligent conversation I've had on China and Tencent. Should we have him back? Yeah, I think so. Why not? Let's uh, let's have him back. Because he knows a lot about China. No, I see see all this techie foaming at the mouth enthusiasm about making money in Tencent over the next 16 weeks. And the fact is $2.67 to $267. Move the decimals. You know, that's what we're talking about I like about
6: that here. 40% of all the unicorns are in China.
0: What's a unicorn?
6: Unicorn is a company above
2: billion dollars in market valuation in the private markets. We own a few See? of them as yeah. well.
0: See the way he did that? Okay. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.